It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 58, Hannah's Prayer and Samuel's Birth. This is Janelle Heaston for the Message to Kings podcast. When one thinks of Samuel, they usually recall the simple story of his mother Hannah being barren and praying to God for a son and Samuel being born and then dedicated to the temple. This is simple enough to understand. However, the historical event has much more to share with us than a simple one-page story that we remember seeing in a children's Bible. Today I get the pleasure in sharing with you some of the insights into this historical event that will leave you amazed and inspired. Just a little background. This story is found in 1 Samuel, both 1 and 2 Samuel, which original context was just one book, not two, tell the lives of Samuel, Saul, and David, three people who were chosen by the Lord and how he used them to help make Israel a strong nation. The first and second Samuel books cover over a century of Israel's history from 1100 BC to 970 BC, Samuel's birth to David's death. As first Samuel begins, Israel was at a low point spiritually. The priesthood was corrupt and idolatry was practiced. Through the influence of Samuel and David, which we will see introduced in the book of first Samuel, these conditions began to turn around. The great empires of the ancient world were in a state of weakness. At this time, Israel's biggest threat was the Philistines to the west and the Ammonites to the east, not Egypt or Mesopotamia. The Philistines controlled the use of iron, which gave them a decided military advantage over Israel. We will see in 1 Samuel how God works in and through Samuel, Saul, and David's lives. Today, I want to share the story of Samuel's birth. To fully understand the story of Samuel, we need to take a look at his mother and, yes, even his father. Often in the story of Samuel's birth, the emphasis is usually on Hannah and Samuel. In fact, many probably recall very little about Samuel's father, Elkanah. However, I want to start off and talk a bit about Elkanah, the father of Samuel, because not only is he the father, but there is great significance to his story in the whole picture. Elkanah was a man of great wealth and held a high position in Ramah, which is about six miles north of Jerusalem. He was a Levite, although he doesn't seem to have performed any of the usual offices that a Levite would hold. He is actually the direct descendant of Korah, which you may recall in episode 22 and 23, where I share the story of Korah's rebellion against God. It's a really fascinating story I would recommend studying if you aren't familiar with it. In brief, Korah rebelled against Moses and God, and the outcome was God judged Korah in a harsh death, but his family was spared and redeemed as authors of many psalms. So Elkanah is included in this, just to think that God, in his great mercy, saved the family of Korah, and as we can see how God worked this out in his magnificent way, he chose one of the greatest judges of Israel to be Elkanah's son. I personally feel this is a wonderful mystery revealed in the Word and makes biblical history so amazing. We will talk more about this connection later. Elkanah's name actually means God has created, God has possessed. A very appropriate name considering what we know about him so far. Hannah was his first wife and her name means grace and favor. Because the Lord had closed her womb, 
Hannah considered herself worthless as a wife by not producing any children for her husband. In Hebrew tradition, being fruitful and bearing children was very important. We can conclude that he took another wife so his bloodline would continue. There are two possible theories on why Elkanah married Penina, his second wife. The name Penina means coral or red pearl. According to Jewish tradition, the Mishnah ordains that when a couple has been married for 10 years without bringing any children into the world, the husband is required to take a second wife in order to fulfill the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. So possibly Elkanah and Hannah were married for 10 years and since no children were born during the 10 years, Elkanah was required to marry Penina. Another tradition has Hannah initiating Elkanah to marry Penina. Realizing that she was childless, she said to herself, if I tell Akana to take an additional wife, God will see that I brought a rival wife into my house, and he will remember me. This sounds very similar to the historical event of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, and also Rachel and Billah, in which the beloved wife is barren and initiates the taking of additional wife to produce the offspring she can't provide her husband. Though it was legal for men to have two wives, it was not God's original design. In nearly every case in history, there was extreme jealousy between the women. God's original design was for a man to leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and become one flesh. Either way, the fact remains that Hannah is barren and Penina has many children, both sons and daughters. In 1 Samuel 3, it states, Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrificed the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. The account starts out with Elkanah performing his required duty as required for all men three times a year. He travels to Shiloh, which is about 15 miles north of Ramah, to worship, literally translates, to bow down and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts. Elkanah could have chosen a closer location to observe his required duty. However, he chooses Shiloh, most likely because he recognized Shiloh as a principal location where the ark was located in order to worship and sacrifice to the true God. The object of Elkanah's pilgrimage was the Lord of hosts. This is the first occasion for this divine title in the Hebrew scriptures and linked to Shiloh where the portable sanctuary came to rest after the wilderness period. Thus the meaning of Shiloh is rest. Today, if you visited Shiloh, you could stand at the exact place where some scholars believe the tabernacle stood. This would also be the spot where Hannah came to pray for a son. It was from Shiloh that the ark was taken into battle and temporarily lost to the Philistines. Many significant excavations have taken place over the years, including a Danish expedition which recovered 10 whole vessels and an Israeli expedition which found 30 additional vessels. All of these artifacts are in line with the biblical timeline. So three times a year, the men were required to go up and worship at the designated feast in Shiloh. However, most just went once a year to Passover. These three feasts were the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover, Pentecost and Harvest, and the Feast of Tabernacles. During these feasts, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. This particular feast that Elkanah attended is generally believed to be the Passover, which is considered the most important feast in Jewish tradition. So here's Elkanah bringing both his wives, Penina with her sons and daughters, possibly ten children, and Hannah with no children to Shiloh. 
to offer a peace offering, one where the blood was poured out at the foot of the altar and the fat would burn on the fire. Here we have the breast and right shoulder given as a portion to the priest and the rest was shared among Elkanah's family. Everyone was given a portion, the greater part being given to the one offering the sacrifice, and then it is eaten together in one great party. The word goes on to state in 1 Samuel 1-4, Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double or worthy portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. 1 Samuel 1, 4, and 5 relates a very unusual incident that begs our attention. Notice that Elkanah gives Penina and her children portions, but to Hannah he gave a worthy portion. Penina and kids just got a single portion, the portion that was due to them, a standard portion. Hannah received a worthy portion. What's a worthy portion? It was a larger choice, one portion enough for two persons, or a double portion, it was termed the portion of two faces, or the two-faced choice. One can speculate that this double portion was actually taken from Elkanah's portion, which was considered to be the best piece that came to the table. According to Eastern customs, Persia, Arabia, and Indies, the host of the feast would place before his most honored guest a worthy portion in order to show him that he was most valued. By giving Hannah this worthy and double portion was basically saying, you are very important to me. I care for you despite your affliction of being barren. I still value you. Elkanah wanted his guests to see that Hannah was valued above all, even above his own children from Penina. The next part of the story isn't too shocking now that we see how Elkanah is showing his genuine love and attention to Hannah. In verse 6, Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. I am sure Penina took every opportunity to mock Hannah, year after year. You can imagine some of the statements she made to her. Hannah, please move to the end of the table so my children can sit at the table. Hannah, I have to wake up earlier than you because I have the huge responsibility of preparing all of my children for the day. And on and on. There wasn't a day where Hannah wasn't confronted with her barrenness. So what we have here is this. Year after year, the purpose of going to Shiloh was to worship and sacrifice to God. However, we can clearly see that this was not Penina's focus. Hannah was attacked every year by her rival Penina and thus distracted by her grief. It is very difficult to worship the Lord when one is emotionally in turmoil. When one comes to worship the Lord, they must not be at odds with their brother. Jesus said, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. As stated in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, The illustration Jesus presents is that a person who, according to Jewish custom, is bringing an offering to the altar, Naturally, at this time the worshiper should be meditating upon God's goodness towards him. At this time of meditation, he realizes, since God has been so good to me, I too must act accordingly to my brother. What we know about Penina is that she is unloved but fertile and is extremely jealous of Hannah, who is loved but barren. 
One can assume the only thing going for her in her relationship with her husband is the fact that she has many children. As we have seen in previous historical events, such as Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, one could question if Elkanah was out of God's will to marry Penina, and this was, in fact, one area of spiritual weakness in showing extreme partiality to Hannah. Hannah chose not to partake of the feast because her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Which in Hebrew is yara, literally meaning to tremble. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. She rose up, or in Hebrew, kum, meaning to arise, to become powerful. Did you hear that? Hannah rose up. She was tired of being put down year after year. She was tired of not being fruitful year after year. She had enough, so she stood. So picture this. Everyone is eating, but not Hannah. Hannah is in the sanctuary. Eli, the high priest, is in the tabernacle, sitting on something like a throne, a seat of authority by the doorpost of the Lord's house. Most likely, he was in a corner where he could both see who came in and observed what was going on inside the tabernacle. He was there, so all who worshipped walked before him, and he would oversee all the activities. In her deep anguish, Hannah made a vow to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Hannah's heart was broken, and it appears that she was kneeling and praying to the Lord, her prayer coming from her innermost being. O oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a man-child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Her boldness was even greater when she asked for a particular type of child, a man-child, which according to Jewish culture is a perfectly righteous person. Something to note here is that Hannah isn't praying for a son just so she feels like she is worth something to her husband. She isn't praying for a son so she can have a part in the inheritance. She is praying for a son that will dedicate his life to serve God all the days of his life. See the difference? How often we lower the expectation of our prayers to what we think is good for us versus trusting God with the impossible and rest in dedicating all he gives us truly to him. This means not controlling what he has given us, not micromanaging, just trusting, resting. So what is the significance of a vow? Specifically, the type Hannah made to the Lord over and over in scripture, we see where vows are to be taken very seriously, that what you vow needs to be fulfilled or you would be found guilty. Hannah didn't make this vow foolishly based on her emotional state. She knew that her words had power and her vow was one she would have to fulfill. The word Nazarite signifies separation and consecration set aside for serving God. According to number six, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine, grape juice, vinegar, and not anything from the vine. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head and the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated to the Lord. There are three mentioned in the Bible that had a lifelong Nazarite vow, Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. In Samson and John the Baptist's instance, God initiated the vow and commanded the mothers to fulfill this vow for their sons. 
In the case of Samuel, it was Hannah that initiated the vow. Though she never stated it was the Nazarite vow, one can easily conclude this is what she was implying since she specifically asked for her son to be given over to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. What is even more fascinating about this is that in all three instances, the mothers were barren. Yes, can you believe that? God really, really loves to show up in impossible situations and the mothers he chose are worthy of the calling of their sons, which historically all three, Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist, all had a very specific calling marked by God. For Samson, God said that he will be set apart to God from birth and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. As we will learn in future podcasts more about Samuel, but he is the most famous and last judge of Israel. And then John the Baptist. He was the son of Elizabeth, who was very old in age when she gave birth to him. And his calling was to prepare the way, announcing Jesus as the Messiah. Three women in three different time instances who God revealed himself to them personally. Why should we ever question God when he has it all figured out? We just need to trust him. So the story continues where Hannah three times speaks of herself as the Lord's maidservant, showing her willingness and humility to serve the Lord. She vows to God if he will let her have a son, she would dedicate him to the Lord's service all his life. And she continued praying before the Lord that Eli absorbed her mouth. During this time, it was the custom to pray aloud, so he was most likely curious to know why he wasn't hearing her pray. Now Hannah, she spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she had been drunk. There are many different theories why Eli accused her of being drunk. The first being that it was very unusual for a woman to look the way she did in prayer by passionately praying without spoken words and thus had to be drunk to explain this manner of praying. Also, if she was drunk, she wasn't allowed to be praying. Another theory is that Eli might have mistaken her for one of the ladies that in 1 Samuel 2, as the ones who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting, who Eli's son slept with. One can conclude these ladies represent low moral standards, and thus Eli could have thought she was one of these ladies. When he doesn't hear the words of her mouth, Eli thinks the worst. He assumes she has had too much to drink. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Get rid of your wine. Eli is telling her to stop drinking. He is wanting her to go home and sober up. This is the holiest of holy men during this time, and here he is accusing her of being drunk. But Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Hannah wants Eli to know that she hasn't been drinking, but praying to God because her heart is broken. She had been praying for prayers to be heard by God alone, no one else. Hannah continues, do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, a daughter of Belial, which literally means worthlessness. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Can you imagine this? Here Hannah had been fervently praying and in such physical and emotional turmoil and the high priest says, go in peace and the God of Israel will answer your prayer. 
The high priest represented the people to God and God to the people. This is telling Hannah, you will get your son. Of course she wanted to eat after a promise like that. What do we know about Eli? The name Eli means my God. He was a high priest for 40 years and the father of two grown sons who are also serving as priests. His sons were Hophni means fighter or professional boxer and Phineas means mouth. Sadly, the sons could be considered to be some of the worst priests in the history of priesthood. Eli didn't have the best reputation as both a father or a priest. He allowed the grossest kind of evil abide in his own household. In fact, God describes his sons as worthless of men who did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. And also scripture tells us in 1 Samuel 2, 22, they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. How would you like to have sons with a reputation as this? Worse than that, how would you like to be known for allowing that level of evil in your household? Despite his poor example as a father and leader, Eli did do some things right. He was a judge for 40 years and maintained the sacrificial system and kept the tabernacle open, and he took the role of mentoring Samuel serious. So the story continues. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah and Hannah had relations and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Hannah dedicates Samuel. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. I'm going to talk just a bit about weaning in the Jewish culture so we can understand how long exactly Samuel was nurtured by Hannah until he was presented to the temple. It is believed by many that Samuel was most likely weaned at the age of three years old. According to Jewish culture, the time when a child is weaned is cause for great celebration. A weaned child has survived the fragile stage of infancy and can now eat solid food rather than breast milk from its mother. Abraham modeled this by holding a feast when Isaac was weaned, as noted in Genesis 21.8. Today, Jewish tradition continues the practice of celebrating the weaning of a child. Psalm 104 is often read during this time. Part of that psalm says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. Personally, I feel like adopting the celebration when I wean our fourth child, who is currently eight months old because it is a cause for great celebration. Dedicating the time and physical dedication to nursing your child is a personal sacrifice, but yet one of the greatest honors. Hannah keeping her son until he's weaned reminds me of how Moses' mother was able to take care of Moses until he was weaned, and then he went to live in Pharaoh's palace. I would say these three or so years of caring for her son were very instrumental in developing his love for God, his character, and his identity. I can just imagine Hannah holding him tight, praying all of God's promises over him and speaking his destiny to this little boy and about all the amazing ways God was going to use him to restore Israel. As a mom, this is a huge encouragement to know that God does hear your prayers for your children and as insignificant as it may seem, calling out the promises of God for your children and speaking it over them even when they are one, two, and three years old can shape who they will be when they grow up. 
The fact that Hannah chose to keep Samuel these three or so years shows even her greater dependence on the Lord as she set aside her selfish ambition and poured her time and love into her son. So when Hannah tells her husband she will not join him on his yearly family trip until Samuel is weaned, Elkanah simply replies, Do what seems best to you. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. So finally, Elkanah gets a son from his beloved wife, and now he has to give him up to serve in the temple. Here is another insight into Elkanah's character. He could have easily and legally said, Sorry, Hannah, I understand you made a vow with God. However, as your husband, I will not honor that vow you made. But he didn't say that. This gives us a pretty good indication that Elkanah respected his wife, loved God, and wanted to please both, even if it meant losing his son to the temple for lifelong service. He played as important of a role as Hannah in Samuel's life. After Samuel was weaned, Hannah took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year bull, an aphah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. If you are Jewish, then you would be familiar with Hannah's story because it is read at the conclusion of the first day of Rosh Hashanah the Jewish New Year, generally around September. During this very special time of year, it is a time to have a greater awareness of our dependence upon God as our creator and sustainer. I think it is very appropriate for the story of Elkanah and Hannah to be shared during this holiday because it confirms to us that even though sometimes it seems impossible to comprehend that God would be concerned with my challenges and desires, this isn't true. He actually cares what troubles us like Hannah. Hannah went boldly before him in prayer, not whining, not asking for something out of selfish ambition, but truly seeking a son for God's purpose, and he listened and gave her her heart's desire. He says, speak to me about what bothers you. Tell me with all your heart what you desire, and I will listen. If it is important to you, then it's important to me. Though I created the world, I created you, and I know everything about you. I want to be involved in your life. If I'm not trusting God for a breakthrough or feeling he isn't concerned about my little life, then I need to remember this story in history. It is there for a reason. Hannah glorified God with a hymn of praise and thanksgiving. It is a psalm of joy and gratitude of her deliverance. Hannah had a personal experience with God, and this is the force behind her praise of thanksgiving. It is really interesting the similarities between Hannah's prayer of praise and Mary's prayer of praise found in Luke 1, 39-55 in the New Testament. It is clear that Mary was familiar with the story of Hannah and Samuel. Just think about it. The story of Hannah was something that Mary knew by heart, and it was probably a source of encouragement and strength for her to see how God used Hannah in just a simple way, with a simple yes to God. If you examine both Hannah and Mary's prayer of praise of thanksgiving, you will see that Hannah saw the Redeemer as God in heaven, giving her a son, Samuel. But Mary sees the Redeemer as God incarnate, her son, Jesus. Hannah's prayer is laced with encouragement, pure worship, and prophecy. Here's what Hannah prayed. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn, my dignity, and strength is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies. Because I rejoice in your Yeshua, your salvation, your deliverance, 
Let's stop here briefly because Hannah is saying something interesting. She's saying, I rejoice in your Jesus. However, of course, Hannah didn't know this would be the formal name of the coming Messiah, the name meaning God saves. But we see this over and over in the Old Testament, how God's inspiration upon men and women in the records and writings they left behind that testify the prophetic nature pointing forward to the coming of Jesus some 1,200 years later. Hannah goes on to say in her prayer of praise and thanksgiving, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven children, and she who have many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and make alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Here we have Hannah starting off in this story being barren, completely brokenhearted by not having children and treated awful by Penina. Hannah's life illustrates that God does indeed hear and answer prayers to those who come to him in faith. Hannah's trust in God resulted in a son that was a prophet of God, a judge, and a leader in the nation of Israel. Samuel did become a mighty servant of God. It doesn't end here. She is then blessed with many more children as well. She had reason to rejoice, and she made sure she remained in a place of thanksgiving for all God did in her life. This really illustrates for us that despite the traumas or challenges we may face in the world around us, God is always there to help. I really hope this account in history has been insightful and encouraging to you. I know I have been blessed by the study of it, and I pray the same for you. I would like to leave you with this, as Hannah prayed, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss the calling of Samuel. And if you want to email Janelle any questions or comments, please do so at messagetokings at gmail.com.